Shrink Wrap Radio number 863, Jungian analyst Michael Gellert, LCSW, on his new book, Legacy of Darkness and Light. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. Radio. All the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous. It's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My return guest today is Jungian analyst Michael Gellert, LCSW. And we're going to be discussing his most recent book, Legacy of Darkness and Light, Our Cultural Icons and Their God Complex. Now, here's the interview. Union analyst Michael Geller, welcome back to Shrinkwrap Radio. Thank you very much. It's become well, a bit it's, of a tradition. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we should make it a regular thing. It feels like we're making it a, a pretty regular thing. Uh, uh, regular thing. You keep turning out the books and uh, we'll keep doing these interviews. And so uh, we are going to be talking about your your latest book, uh, Legacy of Darkness and Light, Our Cultural Icons and Their God Complex. And uh, before we get into the details of the book, I just wanted to touch on your background a bit more, the, the bio that you sent me that uh, not everybody's going to have a chance to see. And uh, and you have such fascinating origins. Uh, uh, you wrote that you're uh, you come from a, a line of uh, Hungarian Jews who, f- who you grew up in Canada and and in Montreal I think it was right and a uh, real cultural hub and uh, and your parents had fled fr- from. Uh, from the Holocaust. So were you already born when they fled or not? No, I was born, <clears throat> excuse me, I was born four years after they finally left Europe and settled in Canada. Okay. Okay, I'm sure there are a lot of family stories about that, but we don't have time to go into that uh, here today. Um, and... Uh, so you said you had a rabbinical education. Uh, does that mean, how was it a rabbinical education? What does that mean? The word rabbinic there is uh, practically synonymous with Talmudic. So up until, I think around age 11, um, <clears throat> my Jewish studies uh, consisted of mostly the biblical stories and uh, liturgy, ritual, and the holidays, and prayer. Uh, At 11, uh, my mother got it into 
her mind to hire the services of a rabbi. And he decided to teach Talmud, which I didn't really know what that was about uh, up until then. And the Talmud is the scripture uh, that uh, came after the Bible in the uh, Jewish religion, and it is looked upon as scripture. Um, it's a whole different way of thinking. It's a big paradigm shift from the biblical God. Most Jews and even Christians today think um, that they're uh, worshiping um, the God of the Bible. Um, but the Talmud has a different vision of God, and it's not personality-wise the God of the uh, uh, Torah and the rest of the Hebrew Bible. Um, it's a completely different paradigm. Okay, I'm, I'm going to stop you there because we're going to we're going to get into that as we discuss the book some okay. more. But I also was was struck that at age 19, it's you reported that you uh, you went to India, and and you went across the entire Indian subcontinent. I don't. Did you go to a uh, uh, to a uh, what do you call it a to study with a uh, oh, an ashram, with, yeah, and to an ashram. No, not not formally as such. Okay, and uh, and uh, and but you did go and study uh, Zen with a Zen master in Japan later, and uh, so you you have a <laughs> you have a long acquaintance with issues having to do with spirituality and with God. And I wanted to ask you, you mentioned that you had a life-threatening experience that you were lucky to escape from. And you say you wrote about that in one of your earlier books, but I don't re recall it. Can you give us a, a, a quick resume of that? Yeah. <clears throat> I was traveling around India, and uh, what I did was... Uh, arrange for my funds to be sent in installments to banks in India because I didn't want to be traveling with uh, too much cash on me. Yeah, right, because, smart. Uh, credit cards weren't around yet. <laughs> uh, and, and they were even, uh, the, the India was not uh, equipped with them. This was before Mother Teresa was even known. And I uh, had to go to Calcutta uh, to, uh, to, to replenish my funds. And uh, in Calcutta, I was mugged, and they took everything, my money, my uh, passport, my visa. And uh, as I said, Mother Teresa wasn't around, and the city was going through a big crisis. There was a cholera outbreak. There were dead people littered all over on the streets. Under oh, my goodness. Covers. A truck went around in the morning and uh, picked up the corpses. It was also monsoon season coming, and it was very hot and very humid. And uh, on top of that, there was no Canadian consulate or embassy oh in uh, Calcutta. Wow. I went to the American consulate, and uh, they couldn't help me because I was not at the time a citizen. Uh, but they advised me to go to the British consulate because as a Canadian, I'm a subject of the British Empire. This is 1973. Oh. Um, and... Um, I lived out on the streets of Calcutta uh, for a couple of weeks, almost. Oh my, a of weeks. oh, my goodness. 
uh, a lot of different adventures with that, uh, all of them uh, dangerous, you know, to be on the streets of Calcutta as a foreigner. Um, but at the end of it, um, I entered this state of pondery or ponderance on what it was all about and what did it mean and what is this awareness that was growing in me. And it was a sense of unity and surrender with and to the environment I was in. Wow. And that kept going one item at a time. Well, here goes my physical safety and then goes my physical health. I contracted a terrible rash in that heat. Plus my cholera vaccine expired. <laughs> and uh, it was a very tough time. You know, the, the uh, Communist Party of India were rioting in the streets and having uh, peace demonstrations when uh, they weren't rioting. Um, and I fell into this state of um, empty oneness, as my Zen teacher later uh, called it, which was a state of um, oneness with the environment and with the people and with what was happening to me and a surrender to it wow. that allowed me to get in touch with the part of our consciousness that seems to be below or transcendent of the surface happenings in society yeah. in the world. Yeah. And that wow. was the beginning of my interest in uh, comparative uh, religion. Right. I, well, what I had the... to, you asked about uh, if I went to India to study in an ashram. Well, not formally, but an Italian person I met, met before I arrived in Calcutta invited me to a community of yogis that catered to yogis who were retired themselves from the ashram and uh -huh. were just living life. And it was in the uh, old uh, ruins of the uh, Vijayanagar Empire. It was a southern empire of India, I think in the 8th century AD, after uh, you know current times. And uh, these uh, yogis lived like monks in um, the abandoned temples of the Vijayanagar Empire. And I ended up being with them, they didn't speak any English, and I didn't speak uh, much more than a few phrases of the uh, Hinduism of uh, Hindi. But the Italian man was pretty well versed, and he was translating. And I ended up uh, intrigued by um, the religious consciousness of these yogis, and that was the beginning of what inspired me together with that experience in Calcutta to go deeper. Yeah, what, what, what a beginning. And I'm resonating to a lot of this in, in an interesting way because uh, something led me to want to read the book Kim. And, uh, and, it, and it describes so vividly uh, a lot of uh, what was going on in India in in the early days. And uh, have you ever read Kim? No, no, I haven't. I don't think I even know who he or she is. <laughs> uh, Kim is uh, is a young boy who finds who uh, whose whose father actually he's not even doesn't know hardly anything about his parents. And as far as he knows, he's Indian when he starts out, and he's kind of a ragamuffin, but he's but he's very bright, and uh, and and he becomes a spy for this powerful warlord, 
It's a fascinating story, and why am I blocking on the famous writer, uh, well-known writer who wrote a lot of well-known books? <laughs> uh, this Salman is, this Rush, is not Salman Rushdie. No, no, this is way before that. Uh, prob probably it'll pop into my mind, or I'll let you know after the call. I'll look it up, or you can look it up online. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, so let's get into uh, discussing your book. And first of all, I want I wanted to compliment you on all the concrete examples in this book, because I think most people, and including me, have the impression that so much of Jungian writing is very abstract, some of it. Some of it gets, just gets so abstract. And by contrast, your book is full of examples that ranging from Martha Stewart to Abraham Lincoln to Bob Dylan to Winston Churchill and Donald Trump and more. Was, was that a, a deliberate strategy as you approached this book? And what, was your, what caused you to do that? I think it was deliberate. Um, I also gravitate toward illustration of ideas in everyday life to Good. make it simpler <laughs> and hit home where people live in their yeah. Yeah. Their hearts. Um, yeah. But I, I, once I recognize how this complex works, I was able to see it almost everywhere you know, on a, on a collective yeah. level in terms of history. And then on the level of individuals, all these people who you would never think had a deep psychological encounter, conscious or not, uh, in terms of being able to resolve it. And uh, I let the book unfold the way the material was coming at me. I'd be... Yeah, yeah, good, good. Beatles interview with the Beatles just out of pleasure. And I just realized in the moment, oh, they were all under the Yabby complex when they were breaking up. So that's yeah, how that. I, yeah, I, I, I want to move on to that. But I just remembered there was another. You start off the book in the intro telling a story about uh, about your father and your relationship with your father. And, uh, and I was surprised that you call him Leslie. But if there, you know, it sounded like it was a very conservative, conservative, traditional home. And here you are calling your father Leslie. Was that common in that community no, or no. what? No, uh, we always called him dad. Oh, okay. <laughs> like most families. But, uh, you know, uh, I didn't want to write it, uh, you know, referring to him as dad. Um <laughs> The way my brother and I always speak uh, or often spoke uh, about him with other people, we just use the word Leslie. Okay, <laughs> okay, I, that clears that up for me. Uh, so you were starting to talk about uh, what you call the God complex in the book, and uh, it's not that the book, despite what I said about the uh, the the wonderful plethora of concrete examples uh, uh, from everyday life. And uh, the book is not lacking theory. There is a lot of, it begins really with a lot of sort of historical and theoretical overview relating to, to God and, you know, whatever God is 
whoever God is, and and uh, and so you discuss it. You discuss God as um, as Yahweh, and you talk about the the uh, the God complex. So, tell us about the God complex and what you mean by that. It's a big topic. Sure. <laughs> I know. Try to narrow it down a little. Um, most people think of the God complex as somebody thinking that they're God. But in fact, most people who have a God complex know very well that they're not literally God or the God of the Bible. They may not even know they have a God complex. So it's not, it's not just people with an overweening ego and narcissism and so on who kind of act like, well, maybe it is actually. Uh, they, may, they may demonstrate the uh, uh, attitudes, the emotional style, and the behaviors of the biblical God because the God complex, it's not something you encounter in the East uh, when somebody says, I am God, or you are God, or we are all God in the East, this is well known to the people who grew up in the Hindu and Buddhist traditions. Uh, it is particularly in the West a uh, complex, uh, again, of the attitudes and the emotional style and the actions or behavior of the biblical God as described in the Hebrew Bible. But everybody in the Abrahamic traditions, which are Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. There are other Abrahamic traditions I don't talk about in the book. For example, the Samaritans, uh, the Baha'i faith, they're all descended from the same patriarch of the Hebrew Bible, who was Abraham. Okay. And uh, as the Bible unfolds, uh, we see increasingly that God himself, the biblical God himself in the Bible is changing. His personality is evolving in that both sides of uh, life come to his service and enter the story of the Bible. And by both sides of the life, I mean here. That, that was a, a, a fascinating thing that I'd never heard before, uh, encountered before, was that the, the God of the Bible was developing and went through developmental stages, and uh, that's that's really a, uh, a brand new idea for me, and I, I think it'll be a brand new idea for many people out there, and and for our listeners and viewers. So, how do, how does how does the the God of the Bible compare to say the Greek and the Roman gods? Because growing up in the Western tradition, we all have more or less some familiarity, uh, or especially people who are interested in Jungian psychology will have had some brush with those gods. Is this god different than those gods? Well, he's a different entity and a different personality, and he manifested in a different uh, historical and cultural way than, for example, the gods of the Greek pantheon. Uh, the one big difference there is the fact that, uh, indeed, um, the uh, Greek gods form a pantheon of different gods who all have their own personalities and their own agendas. They, 
Poseidon was the god of the sea and et cetera, et cetera. Zeus was one of the chief uh, fathers of the other gods. And what happened with the slow rise of monotheism, the gods of the Near East, particularly in Canaan, where the Israelites settled after the Exodus, they amalgamated the many uh, different gods of the Babylonian and then and before them the Sumerian and then after them the Greek, that take all the Greek gods, all the gods of the pantheon, and they put or he evolved into one god. And that became a huge uh, asset in certain ways and a huge problem in other ways. Because on the one hand, this god became a mega personality. He became a uh, like the Godhead and like a fountain that everything comes out of it was the beginning of a different kind of religious experience. The dark side of it was that Yahweh didn't have any siblings or parents. And consequently, before creation, he then would have been just himself. Now we know from the oral tradition that he created the uh, angels such as Lucifer, who was originally the angel of light before he fell and became a dark god. Um, but there were other gods too. Uh, mostly in the Hebrew Bible, it's not, uh, as people often think, uh, singularly uh, monotheistic. It was, for much of its development, it was henotheistic, which means one chief god above all the others in the pantheon. But he eventually became just one god and the focus in the Hebrew Bible is on the relationship the ancient Israelites had with this one God. Yeah, and you refer to him uh, in, in one place, this was another big idea for me, as the orphan God, yes. because there's no, there's no accounting of where he came from. He just always was. Yeah, yeah, I borrowed that uh, notion from Jack Miles, who illustrated... Um, that God did not have any relationships, never mind with humans, but with anything, because there was only God. Um, so when humans uh, come on the scene, uh, Yahweh discovers that the creatures he created didn't turn out the way he had hoped. And <laughs> he created them to be, among other things, less lonely. But the ancient uh, people before Abraham, like Noah, and uh, Adam and Eve, of course, and Cain and Abel, uh, they disappointed God. Instead of bringing him company and fellowship, they brought him, uh, as they would say in Yiddish, a lot of sores, you know, a lot of headaches, because uh, they did not behave well. They ate of the tree they were forbidden to eat of, and that, of course, started the drama of the Bible. If that had not happened, happened, we would all still be in the Garden of Eden, and after a while, what would we be talking about? Because nothing nothing changed there. Yeah. But when Adam and Eve fell, actually, uh, the Zohar, the Kabbalistic uh, book, scripture, the Zohar, uh, indicates in a very subtle way that God fell with Adam and Eve. So when Adam and Eve went into exile, out of the Garden of Eden, Yahweh, or the biblical God, went with them. And there begins the drama of uh, uh, Judaism and Christianity. Yeah, and yeah. 
And this yeah. kind of the idea of God developing and and, and uh, his personality changing really helps me to understand something that I always struggled with was um, why was why was he so punitive? You know why why did he wipe people out for not believing in him or uh, or not worshiping him in the ways yeah. that that he directed and so on? And that just seemed like wow that's that's like a two year old kid who you know who, can, who wants his way. Well, he's been described that way. Even Freud uh, pointed out uh, that he was a volcano god, very volatile. Uh -huh. The question is uh, very interesting uh, because it brings to mind right away these uh, sh shooters who go on shooting sprees. And we now have, at this time, almost uh, two or three of those a week in the country. And oh, the shooters. I misunderstood. Shooters, yeah. Shooters, yeah. shooters who go on shooting yeah. sprees. Okay. Right. And what what little they can find out about the shooters, most of them uh, commit suicide before they're caught, but not all of them. And their writings are left and their postings on the Internet are left. And what comes out is that they feel terribly uh, abandoned and betrayed by their peers, very lonely uh, very angry and it's stewing in them and very underneath the anger, very hurt. Uh-huh. Think of God in the Hebrew Bible. Well, the Hebrew Bible is the story of God's childhood. But with later scriptures, uh, including uh, the Talmud, which we talked about, and then the Quran in Islam and the New Testament in Christianity, God begins to develop out of his childhood and enter, as I see it, uh, his adolescence. It was only much later with the mystics that he actually entered full adulthood. So you do see this evolution of God, and of course it parallels the evolution of human consciousness, since you don't get one without the other. Of course, in the uh, non-duality traditions, which is a whole other topic, uh, you do get that, but uh, commonly in our society today, uh, people still have uh, a very old idea of God uh, that, uh, and little awareness of who the, the biblical God became. He became a mystical God, but that's only there in little hints in the Hebrew Bible. We are, with the amount of people and the way it manifests with uh, the Ave complex, that right away uh, that that right away illustrates the personality of God in us. It's the God complex. It's uh, modeled on the biblical God, and that is why people don't have to go around saying "I am God" or "I think I'm God." They don't think they're God. They're just not aware that the behavior imitates the biblical God because they're caught in a similar primitive emotional place. Yeah, yeah, and you talk about th there is a dual duality that you discuss. You uh, you explore to, to some extent his feminine side. Uh, you say that there is a feminine side, and then later we see the uh, his duality in darkness and light. Yeah, yeah. Talk about those a little bit. I know that I know that in in Jungian thought, 
the feminine is a, a very important concept. Yeah, well, uh, it is in all three of the Abrahamic religions in, in different ways. Uh, according to the oral uh, tradition, um, uh, Yahweh created a female partner for himself uh, before Adam and Eve. And that was Chokhmah. Chokhmah is uh, both the uh, ancient and medieval word for um, wisdom. And Chokhmah was the goddess that Yahweh created as his spouse, his divine partner. And the two of them created creation together. Uh -huh. That becomes evident in the Hebrew Bible with the book of Proverbs. God is not much talked about in the book of Proverbs, which is one of the later books of the Hebrew Bible, inside the Hebrew Bible. And uh, she's really uh, very much uh, modeled on uh, Sophia, the Greek goddess of wisdom. Um, and Jung argues that um, Yahweh, when he got caught up with the drama of what Adam and Eve did, biting of the apple of the knowledge of good and evil, which started the whole dynamic of good and evil, and therefore uh, the drama of humans to evolve into better beings than they were in the beginning. Not that that has happened all that much necessarily. Um, but um, Sophia or Chokhmah come uh, later in the Hebrew Bible as they're getting ready to close the Hebrew Bible and move on to the Talmud. And of course, the New Testament came at the same time around as the Talmud. So, uh, and, and she was, and uh, Chokhmah then was embodied in Mary, the mother of Jesus, also the lover of um, Jesus, however one conceives that, and the other Mary, there's two Marys. Uh, they're both actually two feminine images on a single continuum. Uh, but you see the feminine coming back in, and then of course in Christianity that was um, repressed for centuries and centuries, and only with uh, the uh, Pope John the 23rd, I think it was, who created, you know, he said, let's open up the windows of the Vatican and let some fresh air in. And when they did that, well, the feminine just came right up. And Jung was very uh, uh, complimentary about um, how important and uh, colorful and meaningful that could be. So uh, Jung lived long enough to see the feminine begin to return in the West. Uh -huh. I, I want to point out something, uh, David. You know, uh, this uh, new book was originally a part of a much larger book that uh, got divided into two. And the first part, which is The Divine Mind, you interviewed me on that book too. There I talk mostly about how God changed how God evolved and what happened to him because Yahweh wasn't as all-knowing and omniscient as modern people project. There was a lot he didn't understand and was confused by, just like we as readers of the Hebrew Bible are confused by the same things. In fact, Yahweh was very much in the early Israelite tradition perceived as a man. He described himself as a man of war. And he saw himself as the commander in chief of the Israeli 12, Israelite 12 tribes that went in and conquered the promised land. Uh, there I talk about how um, 
uh, talk about what happened to God in, in, in that big story of the Hebrew Bible. This book is what about what happened to us humans because of what happened to God. And what is it that happened to us? Well, we internalize Yahweh because we no longer saw him on the stage of history. And now he lives inside us, but as a psychological complex. And that's part two of that combined book. But okay. readers don't need to read one or the other first. They both uh, flow into each other in a reciprocal kind of way. But the uh, this book is more about the psychological complex of the biblical God. And the divine mind, the previous one, is more about the historical evolution of the biblical God. Okay, well, let's... It's not, uh, just, it's not, not just the biblical evolution, but right up to the mo modern times. Yeah, let, speaking of that, let's bring in the uh, the modern examples of the complex that that you cite and uh, and uh, one of the people that you talk about is uh, Bill Gates the young Bill Gates you describe as master of the universe yeah tell us about Bill Gates and how that archetype lives in him yeah well <clears throat> Bill Gates's story is the uh, first chapter of the book. And I uh, actually uh, started writing that about uh, eight or nine years ago, maybe 10. You know, I write more than one thing at the same time, so that's why it takes so long <laughs> to publish. Um, and he was, he was my first choice because as the opening uh, epigraph to the chapter says, Bill Gates is an all-American boy. And he's the story of the successful man. Uh, modeled very much on the industrial barons of the uh, Industrial Revolution, like um, Melanie, uh, uh, the, the, um, the Andrew, different, uh, Carnegie, Carnegie and, and yeah, Melanie. Carnegie and Rockefellers and all of those people. Yeah, B Bill Gates is like a modern incarnation of that spirit. Yeah. And in the beginning, uh, I basically wrote about his um, follies as a young boy, really. He was like something like 14 years old and he was already designing what later became Microsoft and the computer. Um, and then as I approached uh, the rewrite of the book, uh, which was uh, probably at the shortly after the beginning of COVID, I realized, oh, Bill Gates followed the arc of Yahweh. What happened to Yahweh happened to Bill Gates too. Yahweh over time became more human, more civilized, more <laughs> loving, more kind. He wasn't the one-sided warrior God or simply the God of law, the 613 Mosaic laws. He became a more embodied, rounded personality. And you see that with Bill Gates when he uh, left his position as president of Microsoft and turned it over to the next uh, baron who would continue yeah. to develop it. And he began to get into uh, different philanthropic causes. He was a huge contributor of funds uh, to find the COVID uh, vaccine. He uh, wrote a book not too long ago on climate change with very concrete suggestions. Not all the ecologists uh, agree with what he wrote, but 
uh, it says something about him and where our other industrial barons need to evolve to in terms what, of their concern for what the is the role the role of his wife Melinda Gates in this uh, shift of his behavior and consciousness do you think well I, I suppose you could uh, say that uh, just like Yahweh with uh, Hokma uh, he discovered uh, his heart and developed his heart with his encounter with his wife um, the feminine has a way of softening up the hardness and the hardening of categories um, of the biblical God. So you see that Bill Gates, like other people in the book, uh, really evolved. And they evolved from a lower level of Yahweh's personality in them being acted out to a more higher level. And you see the pendulum swings from the dark side to something a little more integrating the dark with the light. So the last part of the book, there's four parts, and part four is about the positive Yahweh complex, which uh, by uh, critics, even uh, theologians, is often played up. Um, often one side or another is played up, but not the two together. And in truth, uh, we're people who... Um, we evolved by the yin-yang principle that the complementary opposite is what brings a sense of wholeness. Yeah. And that, and that happened to Bill Gates, and that's why I put him in the front of the book. The thing that I love about, about the yin-yang symbol is that there's it's dynamic because the seed of the opposite, you know, you'll see in the black part, there'll be a little little dot of white and in the white there's a little dot of black and so it suggests a dynamic of change and evolution and not it's not going to settle down in one place yeah so i you know i think that people who think that we're going to on this earth find some kind of um, ultimate ultimate peace and positivity heaven on earth, it's just, it's so, it's not according to the nature of how nature seems to work. It's, right. it's going to be constantly evolving. Um, we're going to skip around in some of, some of the uh, uh, people that you mentioned in various chapters. Um, uh, you talk about the Rolling Stones and you talk about the Beatles. <laughs> How can we work them in? <laughs> well, if you look at uh, the different uh, editions of uh, the final recordings and period of the Beatles, uh, you see that the last two albums, they knew they were beginning to head in their own directions and that it was the climax of the 10 years that they were together and they were bickering a lot uh, Peter Jackson did this documentary which uh, um, Get Back I think is the title of it where he showed that the later recording period there was harmony and joy between them and they loved each other and they loved the music but it doesn't take away from 
some of the darker scenes um, in that period where they were arguing with each other and they could barely uh, uh, tolerate each other. The, you know, Ringo went off to Sardinia for uh, a vacation when he got fed up and then George Harrison quit one week and didn't come back till the next week. And the other Beatles didn't know if it was over then, the band was broken up over then. Um, the way um, the Ave Complex seems to have manifested with the Beatles was through the mechanism of what is known in uh, psychoanalysis as projective identification. Uh, Jung talked about that, uh, borrowing a concept of uh, the anthropologist Le Levi Brühl, uh, he talked about that as, um, why am I blanking on it? It's, um, it's a merging of boundaries. And you see this a lot in families that are dysfunctional. They're not on their side of the turf. They're making a lot of you statements and making the other party defensive so that they're very hard to get resolution to the problems. There's a sense of bitterness and defeat. And Paul McCartney, uh, who had the uh, whole period of that uh, ending uh, being filmed in a film that he conceived would be the next Beatles film. And he was interviewed about that and much later after the Beatles broke up. And he said that what you see in those tapes about our later sessions was the beginning of the breakup of a band. And that's exactly what it was. Projective yeah. identification happens when people identify with a mood or a feeling like a depression or anger or hurt, and they think it's their own feeling, their own mood, because it's happening in them. Yeah. Well, that's the Yave complex. It's happening in us, but it gets projected out because we're not looking for Yave in ourselves. And the Beatles weren't looking into themselves in an interrelated way at that point. So they all thought that they were the only one in the band who was suffering. And yeah. they, the other three were united. And there's that, uh, and I present the whole uh, discussion that uh, Ringo gave, that uh, they all, that, that uh, he, he, I think it was um, Paul or Ringo, they went from door to door of each other's home and every time they said, look, I'm going to take a leave of absence. You three guys seem to be really together and I'm just not playing well. And they all said that. And then they realized that they had fallen into something that they all felt. Well, that was the Ave Complex. The okay, Ave what, Complex what, is very much about uh, dissociation and breakdown, unfolding the way the Hebrew Bible does with the personality of Ave into a, a rejuvenation and a kind of redemption which transforms the bitter period into one of insight or light. What about the Rolling Stones? Uh, where, how does the uh, the complex sh show up there? Well, initially, it uh, was not so dissimilar from the Beatles. Uh, you know, they were bickering with each other. Uh, Keith Richards, in his uh, very interesting autobiography. This Life is the title of it, or Life. Um, he says there was a period where the Rolling Stones, the other ones besides Mick Jagger, were making fun of Mick by calling him Brenda. 
because he was behaving like uh, a woman yeah. who uh, had to be the center of attention. Uh, Richard said as part of the uh, syndrome of lead singers that they think that they're the essence and the entirety of the band and the others right. are just yeah. So they had that too, but that was not the way it went with them. Uh, they worked that stuff through to a large extent and uh, managed to stay together. I mean, you know, the Beatles were together 10 years. The Stones, it's been, I think it's going on to 60 years already, if not uh, all. Wow. Yeah, wow. They've really been around and they've survived. Yeah. The, way the, the way the Abbey Complex uh, erupted with the uh, Rolling Stones was in their identification with uh, the passions of the soul and with whether they stated as such or not, uh, the Dionysian god Dionysus, who was the god of ecstasy and uh, joy and sensuality and sexuality and erotic love. Um, a lot of their music is about that. Um, even in their uh, elderly years, they're still you know, with younger women and writing about this, uh, the romance mm -hmm. of life that the feminine yeah. can introduce into a man's psyche. And uh, it's with the idea of what all the uh, British rock bands uh, did. They picked up on the uh, genre of soul and blues of uh, the American uh, rock and early rock and roll, and jazz as well. And they made it their own. And it's usually, uh, you know, a lot of lyrics about the workings of passion. Okay. So um, they don't really have a Yave complex. What they have is a Dionysus complex. <laughs> and what you is interesting, and I try to present that in the chapter on them, that you see in the lyrics and in the music, especially the late Rolling Stones, which nobody listens to. Mick Jagger complains that when they go on tour, everybody wants to hear the old songs. Right, but right. That they, they really evolved musically. They're very sophisticated uh, musicians, and very few people listen to their later stuff, to their own consternation. Yeah. Um, but what you really see in the lyrics is this implicit battle between Dionysus and Yahweh, and a battle for the soul. Who gets to live in the human soul now in the West? And in a sense, you see the same thing in the chapter on Marilyn Monroe and uh, her marriage to Do uh, Joe DiMaggio. There are two gods at war, and it's the same two gods. It's Dionysus, whom, of course, Marilyn Monroe embodied and projected and pulled out of the culture. And uh, Joe DiMaggio, who was quite a Yavist, didn't know a thing about Yahweh or the Hebrew Bible, but as the book uh, tries to show, you don't need to have read the Hebrew Bible or know about it to enact the complex of its central God. Uh -huh. So, yeah. uh, you know, all those examples are illustrating the different angles and ways the Yave complex can manifest. Right. So uh, how about Bob Dylan? You talk about his... Uh, 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 Apocalyptic sensibility. Yeah, yeah, I was having yeah. trouble pronouncing it. Apocalyptic, yeah. yeah. Sensibility, yeah. Well, he uh, he has been a, a devout... He has been a devout Jew and uh, 
during his, his Christian period, a, a devout Christian as well. He has been a devout believer in the God of the biblical traditions since he was a very young man, and even at the very early beginnings of his folk songs, um, you find beautiful uh, lyrics devoted to the wonders of the divine in uh, the soul and in nature and uh, in romance particularly. Uh, what you really find as the apocalyptic, as the yavistic edge is his um, delving into apocalypticism, particularly Christian apocalypticism. I point out some differences between that and the Jewish tradition he comes from. Uh, he's pretty much, I understand, uh, following a, a Jewish path. But when it comes to the apocalypse, he's more on the Christian side, the Christian and Jewish and Muslim sides so all have slightly different takes on what the apocalypse will be and why we need it, not just that we create it out of our ignorance with nuclear weapons and so forth, but we need it for our transformation. And um, the Jewish version has a more peaceful uh, view on that, whereas the Christian one, based on the book of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, the uh, apocalypse is presented in starker and darker terms. Yeah. But through all of that, you can look for the apocalypse motif in Dylan's work from his days as a young man to today as well. He writes a lot about it. And even when he doesn't refer to it directly, it's there between the lines. If you know how to read his, his uh, poetry, he's very concerned about what will happen to us. And he's very skeptical that it will happen without a dark apocalypse. Speaking of the dark apocalypse, we can't leave this without talking about Donald Trump. And you devote a fair amount in the book to your discussion of Donald Trump. So take us there <laughs> or take yeah. us away from there either way. <laughs> well, he's a good example of <clears throat> that you don't have to think you are literally God to have the Abbe complex. You just don't know that you have it. He kind of, I think, knows his effect on people and he knows how to manipulate that. Um, when he said, I could murder somebody on Fifth Avenue and people would still vote for me, that says something both about his psychology and the psychology of his followers. He ran the government and his behaviors, both in word, where he could be very destructive, and action, behavioral um, modeling that his followers, his key supporters uh, latched onto about him. His actions and his, his behaviors are very uh, Old Testament-ish, if I could use a term like that. Yahweh wasn't very aware, as Jung points out in answer to Job, of the effects he had on people. So Yahweh could wipe out Job's entire family and give Job every disease that the human body can manifest and be doing it as part of a wager with uh, Satan 
as to how long will Job last in his faithfulness to Yahweh if Yahweh treats him in this way. Well, Yahweh was, you know, contrary to what uh, what Einstein said that God doesn't play play dice with the universe. Well, with Job, he certainly was playing dice. He was wagering with Satan how much abuse he would yeah. take when he would forsake his faith to Yahweh. Um, he had no awareness of the suffering it would cause. And even when he restored Job's family to Job, he didn't restore them to the old family. He didn't resurrect his previous family. He created new family as if that replaces the old one in some strange kind of logic that Yahweh has. Right up to the end, uh, the, the Hebrew Bible ends on a very positive note, and I'm talking about the Hebrew Bible, not the Christian Old Testament. Uh, they're, they're two slightly different books in terms of their arrangement. Um, right up till the very end, uh, Yahweh is not very self-conscious. He doesn't have a conscience. He has that narcissistic uh, quality of... Uh, um, not having empathy for another's suffering. Um, and you see that very much in Trump. Yeah. He had so, absolutely no compassion for all the people who died in COVID and their fat surviving families. When he made fun of that Pakistani-American couple whose son was, I think, given a Medal of Honor serving in the armed forces. He made fun of those parents. Um, his actions with the uh, issue of immigration and the border between Mexico and the U.S. and all those children and uh, detainment facilities separated from their parents at an age of the four or five. He had he could have stopped that right away. It didn't cross his mind. So, I mean, you can go on forever. You know, uh, we're going to be hearing a lot of things from historians in the next 10 years. And uh, this, the drama is not over, as I mentioned in the uh, release, uh, new uh, updated version of my uh, book on American culture, uh, America's Identity Crisis. Um, even before, uh, even in the very first year uh, of uh, Trump's um, presidency, I had the feeling that his impact would last much longer than four years and that the uh, president of this period, nobody knew it would be Biden for sure. Nobody knew for sure. But, um, you know, I, I, as many people projected ahead, they said, it's going to take a long time to fix all the things that uh, Donald Trump uh, took down. And the aspect of Yahweh that he, perhaps more than other aspects, uh, demonstrated was the scorched earth policy of Yahweh. Yahweh, when he went to war, commanded the Israelites for many of the townships of the Canaanites that the Israelites conquered, Yahweh instructed the uh, Israelites to level the ground of those settlements. Unless they voluntarily uh, surrender, raise the 
ground down and kill every man, woman, child, and even their animals. That kind of policy of dismantling the government, one department at a time, and one, you know, it took a long time for the environmental uh, 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 guardianship agency to develop it. The, um, you know, the eco the, that department was set up by Nixon, a conservative, um, and Trump just totally dismantled it. You don't hear about them anymore at all. <coughs> so I didn't want to uh, justify his presidency by sucking, he sucks the air out of the room so that he gets more airtime than the current president does. I didn't want to repeat that in the book, and therefore I didn't want to give him yeah. a chapter of his own. Yeah. One could write an entire <coughs> two or me. three volumes on everything he did and compare it to uh, Yahweh's uh, point of view on things, and it's like you're reading the Hebrew Bible almost. Okay, well, let's close with you giving a little pitch for the book. Who, who should read this book and why? Uh -huh. Well, <laughs> at the sound of, at the risk of sounding gra grandiose myself, I, I hope I'm not. Uh, it's for everyone. Uh, those chapters are from popular culture. I only have one patient uh, story in them. I have a number of U.S. presidents and the Putins in there, and the, everything going on around us and amidst us uh, is talked about. The Abbey Complex is perhaps the most all-encompassing and dark complex of all the complexes we have. He's a war god. And we are still in the throes of collective childhood, Jung said. We haven't evolved very much at all in the last 10 millennia. We see this very clearly with the kinds of war and the different numbers of wars going on at any given time that don't get covered by the media. Um, we're warlike creatures. And some people denigrate human beings by saying we're animals. Well, we behave worse than many of the animals do. We don't only destroy for our survival to eat meat, but because sad to say we love it. There seems to be something in human nature that won't go away. And as James Hillman said, our wars will continue as long as our war gods are central, central in driving us forward. But we live, we live in a very confusing moment, I think. Yeah. And and uh, so I recommend my listeners uh, uh, seek out your book because it will help them understand the confusing period that we're going through. And uh, so, uh, so uh, Michael Gellert, I want to thank you for being my guest again on Shrinkwrap Radio. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on.
Once again, it was my privilege to have Jungian analyst Michael Gellert, LCSW, back on the show. This time, our conversation focused on his most recent book, Legacy of Darkness and Light, Our Cultural Icons and Their God Complex. Reviewing his background a bit brings out how supremely qualified he is to write a book about God and spirituality. We discover he grew up in Montreal, the son of conservative Jewish parents who had moved there to escape the Holocaust. We also find out he traveled to India at age 19 and was mugged in Calcutta, losing all his money and passport in the process. He couldn't get a change of clothes and was forced to live on the streets during a cholera epidemic in which dead bodies were lying all about the streets. This all happened before there were cell phones or an internet had been invented. So he was really up against it without any way to reach out to parents or family or friends. Not surprisingly, this assault on his senses and reality as he had known it created an altered state of consciousness in which he experienced a kind of state of satori he eventually realized later. He eventually traveled with a multilingual Italian who took him to a community of older yogis, who, and he lived there for two years. He also spent two years in Japan studying under a Zen master there. It's easy to understand how these formative experiences created a unique spiritual orientation and an ability to look at different religions from an objective perspective. And, of course, his training as a Jungian analyst further cemented this analytic and historical stance toward conceptions of the gods. Toward the end of the interview, I asked him who should read this book, and he replied, everyone. After some reflection, I agree. We find ourselves living in a particularly fraught and confusing time. Michael's book, with its documenting of the dark side of God's nature and the ways we have internalized it into a God complex, using contemporary examples ranging from Martha Stewart to Abraham Lincoln to Bob Dylan to Winston Churchill to Donald Trump and more, provides us with some perspective. I think he's given us a kind of roadmap to navigate, to calm our anxieties, and realize we are living through a particular historical transition. It's a cyclical process. We can't know how it will end, but wars and rumors of war is nothing new. The book is Legacy of Darkness and Light, Our Cultural Icons and Their God Complex by Jungian analyst Michael Gellert. Hi, Dr. Dave. My name is Paul Fishman. I practice psychiatry in San Francisco, and I've been a listener to Shrink Wrap radio podcasts on my phone for over a year. I'm finally getting around to sending you a donation. I've hesitated to go to your website to find the donation link because I wanted to do so along with sending you kudos in the form of a particular reflection on one of your podcasts, hoping I'd thereby encourage others to donate. I might have done so on several inspiring occasions over the past year, but I haven't had the time. I want to encourage other listeners not to do as I have done. Go to the website now and click the donate link. Your reflections are not required to make a donation. 
Thank you, San Francisco psychiatrist Paul Fishman. Thanks for donating and encouraging others to follow your fine example. I agree, no commentary on a favorite interview is necessary. Just make that donation and help us keep the lights on. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to Jungian analyst Michael Gillert for speaking about his latest book on the God Complex and the Legacy of Darkness and Light. I particularly appreciate the way he brings the God Complex to life with many examples from film, current news, and popular media. I'm going to skip a week so you can find a good past show you might have missed by scrolling through the All Shows link on our website at shrinkwrapradio.com. Until next time, which will be in two weeks, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourself, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.